who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, June 9th. It'll be a first-time Grand Slam champion guaranteed from the women's singles event in Paris as Maria Sakkari knocks off defending French Open champ Iga Swiatek in a straight-set quarterfinal victory, opening up the draw. At the 2021 French Open, it's four first-time semifinalists now remaining in the women's singles event. And of course, on today's podcast, I want to break down Sakari's victory because certainly we have discussed her quite a bit over the last 52 weeks here on the Mini Break Podcast. She's had so much success at so many different events, so many different levels of the game as well. Uh, but is she ready to take the big leap? become a Grand Slam champion. Certainly, you look at how open that draw is. She's probably the favorite at this point. And of course, I want to talk about Iga Swiatek, where she goes from here. This is just a blip in what is certainly going to be a fantastic, uh, perhaps historic career from Iga Swiatek. But I do want to talk about what went wrong for her today. Of course, where she goes over these next few months is going to be one of the storylines in women's tennis. And, you know, again, it's not just that match. There were a couple of other fantastic quarterfinal battles. Barbara Krejcikova and uh, reaching her first Grand Slam singles semifinal as well, a straight set victory over Coco Goff. And then I can't imagine a more ideal field than the semifinal matches we have on the men's side. You get the next-gen battle on the bottom half, Sverev taking on Tsitsipas. And then on the top half, you get Nadal versus Djokovic, part 58. Certainly, there are no secrets between the two of them, and we've all seen that matchup unfold before. In fact, last year in the French Open final, Rafa rolled Novak in a straight set victory. That was his, what, four, I believe 13th French Open title at the time. He's going to have to go through Djokovic again to get number 14. I want to talk about that matchup as well as how we got there. Nadal, four set victory, drops his first set of the tournament against Diego Schwartzman for Novak Djokovic. Was a testy 
for said victory. We all saw his roar by now at the end of the match. For set victory for him over Matteo Berrettini. Want to talk about those matches again? Uh, it's going to be recapping the quarterfinals. I want to talk about the men's semifinal matches a little bit here because by the time you listen to this, likely at least one of the women's semifinals will have completed. But of course, the reason we're able to do these podcasts day in day out is because of the support we get, uh, continue to get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course. From our friends at Tennis Point, look, it is now officially summertime, and you are likely getting back out there yourselves, hopefully hitting the hard courts, hitting the clays, whatever it is in your area. I know for me personally, the indie tennis ladder I've now a, a part of, we have reached our fourth round of competition. Your boy's 3-0, and and I kind of give credit, I'm not going to lie, to my friends at Tennis Point because I needed a new set of kicks to go from the indoors to the outdoors. I had worn through my shoes. The whole, you know, the toe was sticking out of them. At that point, you got to get the upgrade in. My friends at Tennis Point hooked me up. I've got the set of Nikes I need to thrive. And maybe you're not a Nike. Maybe you're an Adidas player. Maybe you like to rock, you know, the Babolats, the Heads, the Asics, whatever it may be. Our friends at Tennis Point have it all. The best equipment at the best prices. You use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, if you go to MidwestSports.com, It'll take you to tennis-point.com, but just get in the habit, tennis-point, that's the symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15, and by the way, I'm not saying my success is because I upgraded my shoes at tennis-point.com, but I'm not saying it's not because of that as well, so remember, tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15, with that in mind, let's start with the result of the day, Maria Sakri comes, uh, you know, number 17 seed. She comes into this match having earned a couple of really impressive victories already in this tournament. Obviously, it was a three-set wins for her over Elisa Mertens, your 2020 WTA wins leader, seven five six seven six two, and those are two players so, I think, uh, linked really in their career trajectories. Those are two players born 1995, I believe both of them are 95ers. And, you know, that's often an overlooked generation on both the men's and women's tours, but in the women's tour in particular, because you have Serena, who looms above all others. Her pursuit of another Grand Slam title will be the story of every WTA Grand Slam she competes in until she retires, and justifiably so, because she's pursuing history, and there's nothing more appealing in sport than players pursuing history. Outside of that, you do have a generation of players primarily led, we'll say, by Simona Halep, as she's the one who seems to be competing most frequently for Grand Slam titles, but, you know, it wasn't just her. There was, well, it really was her spearheading that generation, but there were players like Kerber, Kvitova, who are around that age as well, uh, who are often in the mix when they are playing their best tennis. And then, you know, you have the young stars. You have Osaka. You have Andrescu. You have Sonia Kennan. You have, you know, all of these players that have emerged. I'm sure I'm forgetting one. I apologize for that. There are, oh, uh, uh, Ashley Barty, uh, who have all won Grand Slam titles, who are the next generation of women's stars. And then, you know, of course, there are other interesting young players in the mix as well who immediately get thrown in that conversation. Sabalenka, 
belongs in that conversation. Iga Sviantek, duh, Grand Slam champion, belongs in that conversation. You have other names as well, Coco Goff being an obvious one, and you've had you know players like Yastremska make the runs, and uh, just so many talented players who, Vandrusova make a final as well. Uh, and you, you forget about the generation of players, the Svitolinas of the world, the Muguruzas of the world, the Pliskovas of the world, the you know Madison Keys of the world, Sloane Stevens of the world, because it almost feels like, well, we, we kind of know what their ceiling is, but we don't, you know, we don't yet know the ceiling of all of these extremely talented young players. And, you know, that that's a fair thing to do, because so often in a growth curve of a, a player who's going to be winning Grand Slams, you're going to see that success so early in their career. By the time they're 21, 22, they're already competing in that level. They've broken, at a minimum, the top 20, probably the top 15, the best of the best, even the top 10. And as we've seen for four of them, they're already Grand Slam champions, I suppose five of them, uh, if you throw Barty in that young mix as well. And I mean, she is what, 25 years old, absolutely should be considered. She's a 96. Anyways, those 95ers, those players with the slower growth curve we've talked about before here on this podcast, the Annette Conteves of the world, the Elisa Mertens of the world, um, you know, even someone like a Barbara Krechakova, who's been extraordinarily successful in doubles, but is now finally making her breakthrough in singles. It took them a little bit longer. In the case of Maria Sakari, I've documented it on this podcast before. She needed to develop her first serve as a weapon, and she's done that over the last five seasons. You look at that first serve win percentage, it's actually improved in each of the last six. It was 59.2 all the way back in 2016. Uh, Her first serve win percentage then goes from 59.8, 63.7, 65.3, 66.5, 66.6, 57.2 win percentage now on her first serve to the point where she's now a top 10 server in Tennis Abstract's leaderboard. And again, it was the win over Mertens in three sets and then, you know, the straight set win over Kennan and now a straight set win over Iga Sviantek, 6-4, where she just outplayed Sviantek minus the first two games from start to finish. And, you know, those first two games, and honestly, the first three games of the match were not very watchable. There was a lot of jitters, a lot of errors, a lot of first ball errors as well. Sakari was trying to swing through everything in those first two games. And, you know, the first two points she won in that opening Iga game were returned. She got deep to the Iga forehand. Hope, you know, hold that thought because we'll get back to it. But then, you know, a couple of errors and then, you know, a low first serve percentage in that first game. And Iga's able to capitalize, make a couple of second serve returns deep, hit a couple of big forehand return winners and connect on some backhands up the line as well. You know, it was, uh, you know, a 2-0 lead for Iga before she knew it. But then Sakari gets the break back because she continued to get returns with depth into the court. And you look at the numbers from the first set, and there's no denying Iga did not serve well in that set. She only made 52% of her first serves. But it's a credit to Sakari who, you know, was was going for her cuts on those second serves. And she essentially got a look at a second serve every other point. And, you know, she won two-thirds of those points. She holds Iga to 5 of 15 on second serve points in the set. That means Iga was 17 of 31 overall in the set, you know, faced five break points. Sakari converted the two that she needed, and, you know, she gets that break back right away, so it's 1-2, but Iga gets a couple break points in that 1-2 service game, 15-40, and Sakari made the choice in that game, and it was the choice she made repeatedly throughout the match to go after the Iga Sviantek forehand with pace. 
all of her serves in the in the pressure moments, whether it was the 1540s, you know, down break points, and she faced six of them in the match. She fought off five. She was serving to Iga's forehand when she had break point chances. She was hitting her return deep to Iga's forehand. When they were mid-rally, she was hitting the ball deep to Iga's forehand because if you can get pace and depth to that side of Iga because of the she does have an extreme grip on that wing and a bigger backswing, she'll either you know shank the ball and it'll produce an error or she'll leave the ball short and you can continue to attack. And that's exactly what Sakari did. And, you know, Sakari is actually perfectly suited for this matchup because when she hit that slice serve out wide on the deuce side or on the ad side hit the slice down the tee she had so much success on her first serve throughout the course of this match and she only made 56 percent of them but she was 29 of 35 on her first serve points she won 83 percent of her first serve points against an Iga Svantec that hadn't dropped the set in 10 consecutive matches in Paris and Look, that success continued on the second serve as well because she placed them so well. She kept getting the ball deep into Iga's forehand. And there were times when Iga would tee off and, you know, Sakari would leave that ball short. It was a gamble because if you do leave the ball short to Iga's forehand and she has time to tee off, you're in trouble. You lose the point. Um, and there were times when Iga did that, but, you know, Iga was lost confidence. I don't want to say she lost confidence. That's too, you know, that's hyperbolic, but she became, she was shakier on the forehand side. She wasn't swinging through it as freely as she normally does. And, you know, she hit 17 winners in this match against 25 unforced errors. Sakari, 26 winners against 24 unforced errors. Sakari, an efficient six of eight at the net, but worked in the drop shot, I thought, really well because that first set, she just kept peppering that forehand depth, 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 and got into Iga's mind, okay, that's that's the game plan for Sakari, clearly. And then second set, she switched tactics. She got an early break by attacking that backhand wing and just hitting to the open court and, you know, using her athleticism to hit through Sviantec and absorb Sviantec's first strike. And Maria Sakari hit some balls out of corners in this match that were just, I mean, she played about as well as Maria Sakari is going to play. But that ceiling was good enough. She was better than Iga. Like, there, there's no denying it wasn't one of those days where Iga was off and Sakari just had to survive the match. No, Sakari took it to Iga and didn't allow Iga to play the sort of first strike dictating tennis that has allowed her to thrive in Paris. And again, you know... I think Sakura did a really good job of avoiding Iga's backhand because when Iga had opportunities to step through and, you know, she had even on deuce side, inside in backhands for down the line winners or on the ad side when Sakura would go for a kick serve and leave it short, Sviantek would beat her to the spot down the line and then have an open court forehand because Sakura would track down everything. Um, and those were the point constructions that went Iga's way. But overall in this match, you know, Sakura... At every level, she won 46 of the 0-4 to four shot rallies. Iga won 38. That's plus 8 Sakari. She won 23 of the 5-plus uh, shot rallies to the 16 of Shiantek. That's, you know, plus Sakari. Sakari was just better at every level in this match. She outplayed Iga Shviantek, and I, this was a level you weren't sure Maria Sakari was going to be able to hit, and you look for her now, I, you know, 32-14 and 14 in her last 52 weeks. That's a 70% win percentage. All of the numbers for her, 
you know the first serve win percentage is up overall the second serve win percentage is up overall the return points are up overall she is one of those players I, I tweeted this out but she's one of seven players to be top 21 in both hold percentage and break percentage and that's a group that she belongs in because she has really been one of the seven players that have mattered over these last 52 weeks and you look for her at the slams now since the start of really 2019 you could say third round Australian Open second round Roland Garros third round Wimbledon third round U.S. Open last year was fourth round Australian Open where she lost to Kvitova fourth round U.S. Open she lost to Serena was a three set loss to Trevisan and this year first round loss to Mladenovic in Australia which you don't love but I mean, wins over Mertens, Kennan, and Sviantek to get to the semifinals. She has earned this spot, and she's probably your favorite. Now, it's worth noting in her career, she's 2-10 in semifinals. Uh, and, you know, again, Krechikova has at least played in this late stage in doubles before. Maria Sakkari has not played in this late stage of a Grand Slam before. At the same time... Sakari is playing with a confidence right now. You just can't deny. And she's played in a ton of semifinals already this year. She did it in Miami. Three set loss to Andrescu. She was right there. She did it in a warm-up event in Australia. Third set tiebreak loss to Conteve. Whatever. Abu Dhabi. Straight set loss to Sabalenka. But no one was beating Sabalenka in Abu Dhabi. You know, those are three losses you can understand. And, you know, context is king. I think that 2-10 and ten record is scary. But... You look for Maria Sakkari now, she's the favorite. There's no denying that she's earned that place. And again, she earned this victory. She was so impressive. Uh, again, that her ability to absorb the first strike, her movement, her ability to turn defense to offense, her ability to hit out of the freaking corners and produce and generate her own pace. Now, I do think the heavy topspin of Sriantec helped Sakkari in, in that she was able to hit through it and not have to worry about keeping the ball down. And you do wonder, Krechikova plays a much flatter game style, so it's an interesting interesting matchup but I mean if Sakari come it was a straight set win for her you like I know it was a physical match but it was only an hour and a half she's the favorite moving through the rest of this draw and again she was your most impressive performer on uh what was this day 11 I believe she advances 6-4-6-4 over Iga Sviantek and just again quickly I suppose where does Iga go from here. You look overall for Iga Sviantek. She's 32-9 in her last 52 weeks, 19-3 in clay court matches. She's the favorite at the French Open every year until someone, you know, takes that title from her because as good as Sakari has been, we haven't seen her rip off the sort of week-in, week-out clay court dominance that we have seen from an Iga or we have from a Barty or we have from a Halep. And that's the discussion Iga's with uh, in when we enter the clay court season. It's those three and maybe Sabalenka if she does something at the majors, but that's a discussion for another time. Anyways, this performance had more to do, I thought, with Maria Sakkari and perhaps just a worn down Iga Sviantek, who no doubt was facing pressure she had never faced before in her career, and I think she handled them extraordinarily well. Again, Sakkari outplayed her. There was nothing, it's not that Sviantek played poorly. Um, so yeah, there's no reason to hold the head down, and I look forward to seeing her game on the on the grass courts of Wimbledon because she's the sort of athlete and she's got the sort of skill set that I think could thrive on the grass courts on all three surfaces. So very excited to see where she goes from here. But again, where is Maria Sakkari going from here to the semifinals as she earns a straight set victory 
over Iga Sviantek. That was quarterfinal number one. I want to talk about Djokovic uh, and Berrettini now switch gears because that was, in, in my opinion, the second highest level match I saw of, on the day. Berrettini was exceptional, but Djokovic is Djokovic. And the thing that's most notable if you're a Djokovic fan is the success he's having playing plus one tennis and in particular asserting himself with his first serve and you look for him in this 6-3-6-2-6-7-7-5 victory and we'll get to the tiebreaker we'll get to the fact that Djokovic was up a mini break 5-4 made two uncharacteristic approach shot errors plus one ball errors in a pressure moment that ultimately gave Bertini the mini break back and allowed him to take that tiebreaker and does that loom large for him in a potential you know tiebreaker with Rafael Nadal I'm sure it's something he's going to be working on today as he prepares for that match tomorrow but you look for Djokovic overall in the match a yes it's let's be clear he's playing Berrettini and not Nadal but he wasn't broken in this match he you know fights off all three break points he faced made 70% of his first serves and won 77% of his first serve points 65% of his second serve points 17 of 19 at the net 44 winners against 19 unforced errors 4 of 9 on his break point chances against Matteo freaking Berrettini the numbers pointed to it the eye test pointed to it this is a Novak Djokovic that picked up his level. This is the best form of Djokovic we have seen. This was far, far better than what we saw him play against Lorenzo Musetti, and he was just so disciplined in this match. And again, it starts with that first serve to make 70% of them to win, you know, uh, first of all, 80, uh, excuse me, 73% of your service points in the match. Speak to his, speaks to his effectiveness on the plus one ball. And for him to, you know, win the zero to four shot rally count against a guy in Matteo Berrettini who's trying to end points as quickly as possible with a big first forehand. You know, Djokovic won 94 of the zero to four shot rallies to Berrettini 79. And that was a testament to Djokovic A., just with rigorous discipline, finding the Berrettini backhand with his serve. On the deuce side, obviously, that's going big down the tee. On the ad side, the, sl- the kicker out wide, even hitting the flat out wide or just into Berrettini's body. Uh, he did a really good job of finding that backhand corner and then, you know, taking that plus one forehand to the open court or hitting that first uh, forehand as an approach shot to the Berrettini backhand and just forcing him to make a pass. And Djokovic, as I mentioned on the net point, so efficient moving forward, 17 of 19 on the day. And wasn't broken for a reason. An execution on his first serve, playing plus one tennis, just keeping Nadal under pressure and finding some easy points. That's going to be crucial if he wants to pull off the upset in the semifinal because it's so difficult to find anything easy against Nadal on a clay court. It's so hard to hit through him at all. Djokovic was able to hit through Matteo Berrettini in his service games. Now, the thing that was so impressive was also the pinpoint accuracy on the returns when he needed them. In particular, that 5-6 return game at the end of the fourth set, you know, Berrettini, I think it was 30-all, and he just hits a laser of a serve for 40-30, and you see Djokovic not get a little frustrated uh, that he wasn't able to do anything about that, but then he locks back in, and he just lasers, you know, a first serve return deep into the Berrettini backhand corner, and he wins that point inside in forehand, and just, he did a good job of keeping Berrettini honest and approaching to the forehand, and if Berrettini was cheating over to the ad side too far, taking that backhand down the line, 
That said, I feel like Djokovic kept the backhand down the line sort of in the queue, waiting to use those against Rafa, as of course that shot's going to be so important in that match. Djokovic's ability to keep Rafa honest in that backhand corner, he's going to have to execute flawlessly if he wants to pull off the upset. And again, today he was fairly flawless. Now, we'll get to the Berrettini side of the equation in a second. It is worth noting that he blinked in that third set tiebreaker, that he was up 5-4, had lasered a couple of returns and gotten the early mini break and had two serves on his racket to close out the set and wasn't able to do it. And, you know, again, the first one, the first one was just an open forehand that he hit in the net tape that he just missed. Like, it was an unforced error. And then the second one, you know, he slipped a little bit as he was hitting the backhand, but that's no excuse. It's a clay court. You have to be ready to slip, and he just didn't give himself margin, and you, he didn't even force Berrettini to, you know, to make a pass, to play a ball, and you have to—you can't give Rafa anything like that, and I know it was two points in an otherwise flawless match, but at least if you're Novak, because I I just feel like Novak's this type of guy that gives you something to be hungry about, and you saw his roar at the end of the match, and the only reason it come off as a, came off as a little bit much is because there were no fans left in the stands. If there were fans there to embrace that roar, that roar would have seemed way more normal, let's be honest. Um, It's because of it was in a dead atmosphere, and so you're like, wow, you can really hear him roar and how loud he is. It's not drowned out by any crowd sound. Um, That's why it came off as dramatic. At the same time, isn't that what we want from our tennis players? Isn't that the sort of just showing that they care, that sort of emotion, that sort of again, enthusiasm to have gotten through in that stage. That's exactly what I want for my number one player in the world, so I can understand that. Now, of course, you feel for Berrettini, who on the flip side, 65% of his first serves go in. He wins 71% of those points, 11 aces against only three double faults, 55 winners in this match against 51 unforced errors. He went for it. Inside in, down the line, drop shots, moving forward. You know, he was 8 of 19 at the net, but he kept trying to put that pressure on Djokovic. And, you know, I, I don't think they count all the errors that they were count as forced errors that Berrettini forced. Djokovic may have gotten his racket on, but, you know, it, it, that ball wasn't landing anywhere near the court. And that Berrettini forehand is a gun. It's a top five forehand on tour. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It just rips through the court. And his first serve, I mean, he rips aces when he needs to. And he rips unreturnable first serves when he needs to. And he plays aggressive with that first ball as well. He plays on his terms. Even against Novak Djokovic, he was holding with him stride for stride in those final two sets. And had his chances in the first set as well uh, in terms of breaking back against Novak and just... You know, there were a couple of mistimed drop shots that you were wondering, why did he do that? At the same time, Djokovic was locked in. Djokovic played a really high-level set, and Djokovic blinks blinks once in that third set tiebreaker, and Berrettini's able to take advantage of it. And again, he hit a, like a short angle inside-in forehand that was just ridiculous. And he's even he really has gotten better swinging through that two-handed backhand, particularly on the return of serve. It's not a strength yet, but I don't. I wouldn't count it as a liability. It's almost a neutral. It's not quite a neutralizer, but it's just a step below back. It's fine, and he still moves really, really well for a guy his size, and he's really fluid out of corners. And again, that first forehand is just a strike, and he's got the feel clearly because he is comfortable playing drop shot, getting to the net, and playing you know volleys as well. And just the problem is. He was playing Novak Djokovic, who neutralizes your first ball and your first in your first serve better than perhaps anyone in men's tennis history. And 
you know, again, this win, Djokovic is getting closer and closer to that peak level. 6-3-6-2-6-7-7-5. He ultimately advances over Berrettini. Of course, now he's going to have the ultimate test in Rafael Nadal. Uh, but you look for Djokovic, 48-8 overall in his last 52 you know, the losses in the clay court season were a bit puzzling to Nadal. You can understand that three-set loss in the Rome final. But Karatsev in Belgrade was a really physical three-set match. But you'd think normally that's a match he gets through. The loss to Evans in Monte Carlo, I don't think anyone can explain. Um, but Djokovic is closer to peaking now than he was then. And, I mean, he's won, what, five matches or four matches in Belgrade now, five matches here. So he's won nine in a row heading into this matchup with Nadal. He's got about as much confidence as you can hope for entering the showdown of showdowns. And again, we'll get to that men's semifinal preview at the end of this show. But Djokovic, four-set win over Berrettini to advance to his, I believe, now 11th French Open semifinal. That's just ridiculous, by the way. Maybe it's his 12th, but the fact that He's reached 12 semifinals, and it's just so overshadowed by the Rafael Nadal stat of 13 titles, which justifiably it should be overshadowed. For someone to win 13 Grand Slams at one event is freaking insane. Um, but that just speaks to how good Novak Djokovic is, and it speaks to the fact in a world without Rafael Nadal, he'd have every record, and it wouldn't be particularly close. Uh, Novak Djokovic advancing to the semifinals for Berrettini, 29-11 in his last 52 uh, you look for him during this clay court season. His losses came to Davidovich Fokina, Zverev, Tsitsipas, and Djokovic. He beat Federer. He beat Rude. He beat Garin. He beat, you know, Hachinov. He beat Krajinovic. He was that good on the clay this year. He's number six in Tennis Abstract's clay court-specific ELO ratings. You look for him in overall ELO. He's number nine. He is a top ten player. There's no denying that. His power skill set it's the modern-day Rayonich. He's going to win a lot of matches just by out-serving, out-classing people who can't handle the pace of his ball. Uh, it's more dynamic, in my opinion, than Milos Rayonich. That's a discussion for another time. But Matteo Bertini is going to be very, very good for a very long time uh, and certainly, again, well-worthy of his quarterfinal run. But that was match number two. Match number three, Krechakova versus Goff. This was a really interesting one. And again, I'm, I'm not going to spend as long on these last two as I did on those first two because you look for Krechkova, 7-6-6-3 over Goff. Well, I may spend that long on this one. It's really the Nadal-Schwartzman one because what what can I, need, I say about a Rafael Nadal match that hasn't already been said? This match was fascinating because early on, the dynamic was very much, oh, Coco Goff's in control. She can rip the winner down the line at will in these rallies. Krechikova's having a difficult time generating enough pace to hit through Goff. But when you realize the scoreline, 7-6-6-3, the terms of those first, you know, because Goff does rip off a three-love lead, and I believe she actually serves for the match up five, uh, up, excuse me, for the match. She served for the set up 5-4, you know, has a set point 40-30, ends up making a backhand error, then a double fault, then another first ball backhand error. That's a story for another time. Goff was ripping a lot of down-the-line winners to take that early three-love lead, and that's just a really hard thing to sustain because she was constantly on the run and hitting those winners on the slide down the line behind Krechikova. And, you know, when that shot goes in, it looks excellent, but that's a really high, you know, high degree of difficulty shot. And, you know, you look for Coco Goff, I thought she was really, you know, again, her first serve certainly was very effective early on. She made 67% of her first serves, but Krechikova 
who's obviously a former, or she's not currently number one doubles player in the world, but she's one of, the, one of the top doubles players in the world. She's so effective at neutralizing serves and just getting that return deep into the court and resetting the point back at neutral. And she got more and more effective at doing that as this match progressed. And you look for Goff, she only won 54% of her first serve points, 40% of her second serve points, 25 winners in this match against fifth, uh, against 41, excuse me, unforced errors. It was just difficult for her to generate easy winners throughout the course of this match, to generate easy plus one opportunities, just easy first strike tennis, because Krejcikova did such a good job by at neutralizing her first strike, and then, you know, for Krejcikova, only made 59% of her first serves, and that number is going to have to be higher against Sakari, but won 69% of those first serve points, and, you know, was four of six on her break point chances, fought off seven of the ten break points that she faced. Uh, a lot of those break points, it was, you know, first forehands that Krejcikova would just hit so effectively to the open space. And I thought, you know, the heavier Coco Goff hit the ball, that was actually better for Barbara Krejcikova because then she could, you know, absorb that topspin and drive through the ball more, uh, the more the way she enjoys to do. And she just created better and better depth. I thought she did a really good job of elevating her backhand and then taking that ball early down the line as well, just mixing up her targets, mixing up her spins. Uh, on that wing and then look 27 winners against 28 unforced errors that's an efficient performance for Krechikova you look for her overall in the match in terms of rally length I thought she was really good with her first ball the numbers reflect that she won 60 of the zero to four shot rallies two goffs 38 number and that speaks to Krechikova is really good at hitting that first strike and then moving forward. And even though the net points don't look that flashy of a number for her in this match, 7 of 14 is not a flashy number. How many times did she draw errors with an approach shot, with a first strike, moving forward that were either unreturnable for Goff or drew a Goff error into the net or a little bit wide on a passing shot? The answer was um, numerous times. And that was what Krechikova did a really good job of doing, of again, attacking that Goff serve, taking Taking it early to the open space, whether it was down the line on inside-in shots, whether it was you know going cross court with the open forehand when she got that return on the deuce side, she just mixed up her targets really, really well. And ultimately, you know, Coco Goff didn't have a big enough first strike weapon, uh, to, or at least wasn't finding the court enough with her first strike to make things easy enough for herself. And that was the other thing. Krechikova was locked in physically, tracking down everything Goff threw at her which is really difficult to do because Goff, her ball is extraordinarily heavy. She does hit a ball that rips through these clay courts, and I think the French Open is going to be very, very kind to her throughout the course of her career. But Krechikova outclassed her in this match, and that's a credit to Barbara Krechikova, who, again, is in the midst of a breakthrough. 41-16 and 16 now is the 25-year-old who's up to number 33 entering this event, which would be an, uh, which is a new career high for her. You look in the live rankings now, Krechikova up to number 23 in the live rankings. That will be a new career high. If she wins this event, it's funny, she'll only get up to number 15 in the rankings. That's freaking crazy. We're ready for these protections to go away. Uh, but anyways... I mean, yeah, that that's, speaks to the level Barbara Krechikova has played at of late. She was the finalist earlier this year in Dubai. She won Strasbourg the week before this event, and you look for her now on the clay. She's won 10 consecutive matches entering this.
the semifinals. So certainly she's got the confidence to knock off Sakari. You look at her losses in the clay court season. It was a three-set loss to Iga, a straight-set loss to Bedosa, and then a loss to Bogdan in Istanbul. But, you know, again... Those are tough losses. Sviantek and Bedosa, that's how good you've had to be to beat her uh, on the clay courts this year. And she's clearly, that forehand works. It's a bigger backswing, but she has time to get into that backswing on clay. She's so good at redirecting the ball, so good at using your momentum and your pace against you. And you look for her now at the Grand Slams. You know, she was a fourth round at Roland Garros last year. She was came through qualifying second round last year at the Australian Open, but then second round this year, Australian Open as well. Uh, again, you look for her. It, it, she's starting to reach. You know, again, this is what a, a breakthrough looks like. If you look at those last three slams for her, she went round of 64, Australian Open, fourth round French Open last year, which was that three set to Podoroska loss. Second round this year, she held seed before losing to the seed Alexandrova. And now she's beaten Alexandrova, Svitolina, Stevens, Goff. Again, she has earned her place in the semifinals. Her battle with Sakari going to be a splendid one. And then, you know, just lastly on Coco Goff, who you look for her now, I mean, 35 and 16 in her last 52. She's at that over two-thirds of her match win number that is indicative of a player making their breakthrough. That's what Goff is doing right now. You look at what she did in this clay court season, quarterfinals of Charleston, three-set loss to Pliskova in Madrid, but then semifinals of Rome, champion in Parma, quarterfinals, first slam quarterfinal of her career at the French Open. Uh, There's a reason you look at Tennis Abstract's ELO rating. She's number 10 in overall ELO. You look clay court specific. She's number 10 in clay court specific. You look 2021 specific with her record of late. She's been the fifth best player according to 2021 ELO ratings. I have to say that top 10 number few Feels about right. She's very Yannick Sinnery. Uh, I think that's the comparison for the two of them, which is that they can win any match they're in. They've got the weapons. They've got the athleticism to compete at the highest levels of the sport already. Uh, it's not a new take to say Coco Goff is a special talent, but you look for her now in the live rankings, number 22. She belongs in the top 25. And the question is, when will she drop out of it next? I don't think for a very, very long time. But that was quarterfinal number three. And again, Sakari Krechikova likely already taking place by the time you're listening to this. I'm leaning Krechikova. Uh, excuse me. I think Sakari wins that match. I'm going to say five and five as well. But I do think that's going to be a very, very fun one. Of course, the other half of the Nadal-Djokovic semifinal required Nadal to knock off Schwartzman. He does that, losing his first set of the tournament, but ultimately earning a four-set victory over Diego Schwartzman. You look for Nadal, ultimately, was a 6-3-4-6-6-4-6 love decision. Look, he just wore Schwartzman down. And this match was a break fest. You look overall, Nadal 7-14 on break points. Schwartzman 3-4, but, I mean, Nadal... Broke the, the problem was Diego Schwartzman had no way to make points easy for himself. And I will say, through the first three sets, he didn't play Nadal to a draw from the baseline, but he played Rafa Nadal about as close as you can play Nadal to a draw in terms of from the baseline at Roland Garros. That said, to do that for the first two hours, two and a half hours is easy. To do that for a third hour is really, really difficult. And that's where that fourth set bagel came from. You look for Rafa, made 66% of his first serves, won 73% of his first serve points, 68% of his second serve points. Those numbers padded, certainly, by the, the blowout in the third set. But, you know... 
35 winners against 29 unforced errors. You look at the the rally breakdowns, Rafa really effective with his first ball as always, and that was the difference in this match. Rafa was able to hit winners with his first forehander, get to the net behind that first forehand. He won 61 of the 0-4 to four shot rally. Schwartzman only won 34 you know, outside of that, Schwartzman, the five-plus the five plus shot rallies, Nadal 47, uh, Schwartzman 43, played them pretty even when they could get the point to neutral past those first two, three balls. But, you know, when Nadal had a chance to rip a Schwartzman second serve or had the opportunity to rip a first forehand off of his own first serve, Nadal was in control. And he certainly enters the match against Djokovic as the favorite because he's looked in better form. There's no denying that. His first forehand, when it's landing, uh, is as effective as ever, and his return games look as effective as ever. Now, the one thing Djokovic really has, and this kind of bleeds into the men's semifinal preview, and with all due respect to Diego Schwartzman, who, to get to the quarterfinals, that was absolutely a victory for him, given the struggles he had earlier in his clay court season, but... You know, you look from 9-37 in his career against top 10 opponents. He's a top 10 player, but it's closer to number 10 than it is to number 5, and that's a testament to his work ethic. That's a testament to the amount of pressure he is able to put on so many opponents just through his relentlessness amidst rallies, but he doesn't have that big weapon. And, you know, again, because he couldn't win points easy against Nadal, because he can't win easy points against the guys like Medvedev, Djokovic, Zverev, uh, that's when that struggle manifests itself. I don't think that's a new story to anything. And again, I'm not trying to diminish what Diego Schwartzman has accomplished. We are huge Schwartzman fans here, uh, as he's Vilachai, you know, Mishpacha. Uh, but nevertheless, that, you know, again, it's not that I'm trying to diminish his efforts because he, he took a set off Nadal. He's one of like three players to, or like six players to take multiple sets off Nadal at the French Open in Nadal's career. And that's because of how much pressure he is able to apply. And that's when he makes a high percentage of his first serve and the point is able to start at a minimum at neutral. He's able to win a lot of those points against Rafa. I'm not trying to defend my takes against. You guys know my thoughts on Schwartzman. But, you know, Nadal able to wear him down ultimately in the fourth set victory. And look... That's what Nadal does. He wears you down. You know what the patterns are going to be. Forehand cross, forehand cross, forehand line, backhand line, backhand line. Oh, you got lazy. I'm going to rip a backhand cross to the open court, and now I get to hit a first forehand either inside out or cross court. Um, You know what the Rafa patterns are going to be. As a credit to Djokovic, he has served well in this event, and you look for him again in his in his match against Berrettini. He wasn't broken, and he won. You know, over I think it was seventy three percent of his serving points in general, one eighty percent of his first serve points. Replicated that performance against Musetti as well. He has played really good first strike tennis, and he's been aggressive with his first forehand. He's been willing to move forward and just be. You know, again, not settle for five to ten shot rallies because while of course he's going to have to have success in those against Rafa and summon that physicality that makes him Novak freaking Djokovic he's also going to have to find some easy points and he's done a good job of doing that this tournament and you know Rafa hasn't served great he served fine and the thing is if you can't beat Rafa in that first I really think you need to take a two sets to love lead on Rafa because if you can't if he gets one of the first sets he's winning set three no matter what like his his level has gotten better and better throughout the course of every match he's played and I think that's the scariest part if you're Novak Djokovic is that if I can't catch him early you know then he gets into his patterns then the forehand starts landing with a little bit more depth like again I go back to that first set against Giannis 
like Sinner. Sinner served for it. And those first six, seven games, the ball was landing a little bit short for Roth. And I think Djokovic has done a really good job of capitalizing when opponents have left the ball short. But, of course, you look in their careers against one another. Uh, Djokovic, 29-28 overall against Rafa, but 7-19 and on clay. He hasn't beaten him on clay since 2016 when he beat him in Rome. And, you know, he the only time he's beaten him at Roland Garros was in 2015. That was a straight set win for Djokovic in the quarterfinals. Uh, again, what does Rafa do so well against Djokovic on clay? He neutralizes his serve. You look for Novak Djokovic in his career against Rafa. He won. He was won 67.7% of his first serve points on clay, 62.9. Second serve, he's won 52.3 on clay, 47.6. His hold percentage against Rafa in his career, 76.4 on clay. It's 66.7, so two-thirds. His break percentage in his career, 25.6 against Rafa on clay, 24. Point four. I mean, he just does everything a little bit worse against Rafa on clay. Meanwhile, of course, Rafa's game becomes that much more effective conversely, and you look for him, or at least his serve percentages say the same on clay against Djokovic as they do on hard court. That's a testament to how effective, again, that first strike, first forehand is for Rafa on this surface. His return numbers also improve significantly. His break percentage of Djokovic jumps 10% from hard court, or from his career average to clay it's 23.6 for his career 33.3 on clay so again Rafa serves aren't diminished Djokovic is and that's the difference that's why Rafa has as much so hey great shot leave that in for sure West off that's a nice little uh, Freudian slip there um that's why he's had so much success but I mean look you lean Rafa because this is clay and it's it's not just Clay, it's Roland Garros where he's lost twice in his career. And again, eye test wise, he's looked better. At the same time, Djokovic needs to have plus one success. He's had that. He's locked in on that specifically in the lead up to this match. I think it's going to be a really, really fun one. Uh, I do think Rafa ends up winning. I think Djokovic takes the set. I think he takes the opening set as well, and I think that adds to the intrigue. But then I think Rafa takes three close sets from there and ends up finding himself in the final against one of Alex Vierv or Stefano Tsitsipas. And I know I talked about that match a little bit yesterday. But look, both guys have had two days off. And I think for Zverev, he enters this match pretty much 100% physically fresh because he played a five-set match uh, in his first-round match but hasn't dropped a set since then and, you know, was a diminished Davidovich Fokina as well in that uh, in that quarterfinal battle. And at least Tsitsipas mentally did have the test of Medvedev that's going to just take more out of you. And, of course, physically that match certainly got physical uh, that's just going to take more out of you in one match than Djokovic, uh, than Zverev has probably had taken out of him in its entirety in, uh, of his run here in Paris. I mean, on the clay, again, Zverev's got the weapon to at least make the Tsitsipas return uncomfortable, and he's got the sort of physicality to, as the match gets longer, you know, withstand Tsitsipas' first strike, and when it becomes a little bit harder for Tsitsipas to generate that first strike pace, you know, Zverev will be right there physically to still hang with him. At the same time, Tsitsipas is playing so decisive, and he's not going to be shook by the moment. And so often we see Zverev, you know, frozen by that moment. The serve abandons him, or he plays such passive tennis. And if you play passive tennis, Tsitsipas is going to make you pay. I think that match goes the distance. I'll take Tsitsipas in five, but I think both of these men's semifinals get super, super fun. And again, 
we, we have a fun uh, day of women's semifinals ahead. It's going to be Sakari taking on uh, Barbara Krejcikova, Pavlochenkova taking on Tamara Zidanzik. Very, very fun uh, day of matches, so hopefully those will be good ones. And, you know, again, the men's semifinals, I guarantee you those are going to be exciting. Certainly we will talk about them a little bit on tomorrow's podcast as those matches, semifinal matches, are going to end pretty early. So we'll try and get that out early enough to you all that you can listen to another preview of the matches. But again, we are guaranteed a first-time slam champion here in the women's singles event at the 2021 French Open. That's all we can ask for as tennis fans some excitement fueled into this year's second major. And of course, if you've missed any of the action from the 2021 French Open, you can catch up on all of it by tuning in to each and every day's mini break recap podcast. If you've missed any of those, you can find them all on our website, crackrackets.com, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Speaking of which, while you're there, please like, rate, subscribe, review, share these podcasts with your friends. It's not just this show. We've got the Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews podcast, all of our Crack Rackets podcasts as well. Well, of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to super producers Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff for the f*** of editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, for our wonderful super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. We'll